Irreverence is the champion of liberty and its only sure defense. This is This Week in Common Sense starring Paul Jacob. Here we go. So, Tim, I, there's no way you would know who said that. <laughs> it sounds an awful lot like Mark Twain, uh, which I found this week. No, not Mark Twain. It was Samuel Clemens. Oh, yes. Good old Sam. <laughs> anyway, which, of course, was uh, Mark Twain's real name. His birth name, yes. Yes. Oh. Uh, he identified no as Mark Twain. Is that what you're saying, Tim? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> there are no real names. Orwell re does this for me. Like, I'll find something he said, some quote that I hadn't heard before, and it's like spot on to today right now and mark twain's that same way yeah uh, he's, he's very good these days i've put a number of them up as thoughts of the day and that's what you're referring to as a thought of the day sometime this week i put it was it was it thursday i don't remember uh, you day, know i i don't know what day i think it actually may have been monday twain irreverence monday you're right and uh, the full quote is interesting as well, because he's talking about newspapers. And he said American newspapers were alone in the world irreverent and irreverent on nearly everything. Now, I don't know if that's true anymore, but it was probably back then. And that was an interesting point of his. It, it really is. And it, it, it made me step back and think, forgive the... The you know when when they're when the newspaper's hitting someone that you like or they're you know they're on the wrong side of an issue, forgive them their irreverence. But the problem, of course, is that there is an incredible amount of reverence for the state, and of course the you know it's it's there's nothing that says newspapers shouldn't criticize private people of power, or even if they don't have power, if they do something wrong, it's still wrong, uh, you know, and, and so newspapers have every right to criticize anybody they darn well please. But it seems like the conception of our free society is that they are especially irreverent and, and critical of the government and, and the most powerful. And it seems to me that that's far less the case. Uh, yeah. than, than it has been and and far less the case than it needs to be i don't you know i i'm only uh you know 150 so i hadn't lived all the time of uh america and i won't i won't pretend i know all the past in some you know intimate way that i don't know it all i know is we need them to be and the twain's right on the mark you know my favorite writer in that vein in american literature is h.l mencken he was yes. irreverent <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> and uh and he did spread it around pretty liberally uh yes he, he did i mean he, <laughs> he had a few he had a few things that he didn't like to joke about and he was i think wrong on those things but he, i mean for he didn't like to joke about liberty which was this, the thing that he said that he admired admired and wanted to push the most uh right. was liberty and by that he meant freedom of speech and all the usual basic freedoms we, we want uh and uh Nowadays, Mencanian irreverence isn't that common in newspapers or on television, but there are a few exceptions. I think Tucker Carlson is as close we have right now to someone who will laughing and mock someone on air and not just 
you know, for political reasons. You know what I mean? I don't know the last part of that, not just for political reasons, but because they did something stupid or because yeah, he, I think he, he's, he's, he's he, yeah, he, he's willing to do it a little bit, a little bit liberally, a little bit widely. Yeah, you're gonna find mockery on every channel. I mean, that's something that's you know, MSNBC yes. does that a lot. Yes, no, they all do, and I usually find it kind of distasteful, and I don't, I don't mind hard arguments, but when it gets kind of like sometimes on the radio, some talk show hosts want to be like just super personal like these people are just evil they, you know and it and that turns me off and i think sometimes tucker carlson's over the top on on stuff like that and and more mocking than needs to be okay forget the mocking let's go on to the next point but i i know my wife doesn't well, she doesn't like to listen to argue, arguing shows that's that's what she calls them my arguing shows but but <laughs> i know so many people who dislike kind of viscerally dislike tucker carlson uh, i know a lot of people who politically dislike him but but i know a lot of people who viscerally dislike him who it's not such a political thing it's they don't like the tone they don't like all these different things and i get that but i don't agree with it because it seems to me i want to hear what he's got to say i don't it's I'm, I don't have to sit with him all day. I don't have to live with him. I, you know, that that his personality isn't exactly what I want. Can't can't you focus on what he's saying? And and what happens to be true so often is that people who sometimes say things too brashly are the people who are saying things that other people aren't saying. Um, I think Tucker Carlson is covering the U.S.-China relationship in a way that no one else on television is covering it, even close. Um, and it doesn't mean that everything he says about it is right. Oh, That's no, not no. the point I'm making. What The point I'm making is he's, he's talking about it, for goodness sake, and almost no one else is. And part of it is people are so afraid they're walking on eggshells. And, and I remember years ago, there were... I was having a discussion with someone and they were, you know, saying, you know, white people shouldn't say things about black people in this particular case. And of course I was making, I was talking about out of wedlock bursts and fatherlessness. And I made the point, if, if you think it's bad in the black community, it, it is a higher percentage, but the rate of increase in fatherlessness is fivefold in the last like 30 years, 40 years in the white community, it's not, it's, it's been more like a 50% increase in the black community or, or a, uh, maybe it's a 200%. I mean, it's, it's, all of it is just ugly and it affects all of us. But I may also made the point in this little interaction that you're not helping anybody by suggesting everybody shut up. That is not how you solve problems. And it's and walking on eggshells and acting like because someone of the same skin color 200 years ago or 10 minutes ago did something asinine or obnoxious or evil or wrong is somehow makes it to where you don't get to say what you think when you know you might you might have something to say that would help the situation. And I, I see this in so often when people talk about China, there was a, a show I watched out of Australia where they were concerned that if there was any battle between Australia and China, that there would be anti-Chinese things. There are a lot of Chinese people in Australia uh, 
and and living there and they were worried it would be a, a problem and it could be and of course my view would be well you better solve that problem but a couple of them were suggesting we really shouldn't talk about it we shouldn't talk about the fact that china is like economically trying to stab us and threatening to blow us up and aiming missiles at us and so on we shouldn't talk about that because it might get to something else and all of these, this sort of bizarre, let's shoot ourselves in the head because we don't have an immediate perfect answer to everything, or because someone 200 years ago who was in my nationality or skin color or religion or whatever did something wrong. This is this is not helping us. It's killing us. All this uh, needing just to censor ourselves for how it appears because of it's actually it's actually an old argument. I mean, it's in a matter in polite society, one doesn't broach a lot of subjects, right? And right. so the question is, when does <laughs> polite society end, and the arena of contest begin? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, many people want everything to be polite society and never broach uncomfortable things, and other people want everything to be the arena. So there probably but is. I kind of disagree with you here, I think, because, or at least I, I, I don't disagree with what you said so much, but I don't think that's where this goes. I don't think it's a matter of, hey, you can't say that because we were trying to have a nice dinner where we didn't talk politics. This is much more, we can demonize, if you're on one side, you can go to bizarre links to where an eight-year-old is responsible for all the evils in the world because of his skin color, and that's the way to get away from racism and people using skin color too much. And then someone else can't say, hey, we got to do something about fatherlessness because the statistics are worse for black couples than for or non-couples than white non-couples or, you know. And, and see, here's another place where if you look at the race statistics, like, most of us are not interested in looking at everything by race. But if you do, you immediately find out, oh, you know, why are Asian kids doing better in school? It's because they study so hard and stuff. You know what else happens? They have moms and dads. They yeah. don't have their the out of wedlock burst. You know, it's like it's like uh, blacks are up here, Hispanics, whites and whites. are We're gaining on everybody. <laughs> you know, we're we're trying to screw ourselves up as fast as we can. And Asians are very low. And look, I don't for a second think it has anything to do with Asian, Black, Hispanic, White. It has nothing to do with that other than cultural norms that make it to where there's a propensity for people of that race to act in certain ways. And so it's it's all about being good, uh, you know, learning uh caring about one another uh marriage marriages that stay together seem to be really important the more we can value kids and and you know protect them and teach them and yeah i mean these are all things and we all sort of know this i think but but it it doesn't get talked about much and instead we talk about you know, ridiculous stuff. We think somehow the way to, you know, the way to a rich and prosperous society where we all are happy and go lucky uh, is that we just take magic money and give it to everybody. We drop ship some cash to you. Um, you know, we're going to solve 
social problems, you know, because we throw money at it. And, uh, you know, it's never worked. I want to get back to Tucker Carlson for a moment because he had an amazing sequence this week. Did you see, did you watch the JFK assassination sequence? No, I actually, uh, you may have already seen it, but I sent you that link, but I was busy. And so I, I got like five minutes into it. And then I realized I don't have, I don't have another 25 minutes to get through it, but it, it I thought it was very interesting. I was kind of hoping you would watch it and be my, uh, oh, it, my it's, it's, it's something else. He quotes, uh, well, an anonymous source within the CIA who can look at all the JFK documents without all the black marks on it. Right. And the, and the, and the guy told him point blank. The CIA was involved, and we don't live in a country we thought we lived in. It was an amazing statement. Wow. And so wow. that that's a, that's a now I believe that's pretty obvious. From I mean I think the JFK assassination stinks from one end to the other, uh, and the very fact that they haven't been releasing all the information like Congress said they should. By the way, this really was it a will, congressional act a while back. It will be sixty years next year, next November. It'll be sixty years. Is it November or is it this yes, November that it was 60 years? 1963. 63, that's right. I always I always get confused. My my little brother was born in November, and it's like I always get confused. Well, he's 62, I think, yes, and JFK was 63. Most people don't have that problem, but for me, that's... Uh, I well, we have the advantage is that basically 1960 is kind of our birth year, so that we could easily... It's easy to do the math if you're born on a zero year. Yes, uh, it's just yes, easier to do really all the is. all the decades. Can you imagine? It's if so you're... wonderful. the The other thing is, with the, with the JFK assassination, I remember the JFK <coughs> assassination, and I, well, I don't remember the assassination. I should I should qualify that. I remember the coverage of the assassination. I remember that the president was killed, and the TV was all full of that because I made I threw a fit because uh, Roy Rogers had been. Uh, preempted by this all this news coverage was, was complaining about the media coverage even then oh very good no i i remember it too uh, I, we were we were somewhere when the television news came on i remember yeah. being there and so which is one of the reasons when somebody asked george herbert walker bush where he was on that day and he said he couldn't remember that's actually one of the key moments when i learned that fact that's <laughs> when i started to think there was something really rotten because i think nearly everybody like three years old on remembers where they were. And so that, yeah. that's, that's an yeah. astounding thing. Anyway, well, uh, you we wrote... Should, there, there, there's something else I got to butt in because uh, this involves you and and uh, your people. Uh, this is... Which about... one of my people? Which which people? The Finnish. Oh, the Finns. The Finnish. Okay, yeah, the Finns. We get, we get uh, the Finns. You whipped Russia in 1939 on, uh, on the 12th of December. 1939 won the uh the winter war well of course i had nothing to do with it uh but uh yeah oh, my, come my on. People, you're t you're t <laughs> in fact all my people had come over the country, this country uh, long before uh but yeah uh, there if there's a lot of uh freedom history uh you know you know the thought of the day well we have a freedom a day in history or something what is it called today so today today and uh, there's a lot of uh, you only do them. But, uh, yeah, what, what is it called? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but but there's a lot of Finn stuff there because they have a lot of interesting World War II history. There's, yes. a, there's actually a, the 20th century is interesting for Finland in ways that many other countries aren't. For instance, they you know they gained their independence from Russia, which was a big deal, and you know during World War One, and then they elected a 
king from one of the uh, you know German princes, and then he resigned and said, "You don't need a king." I was hoping you would. Uh, I, I wasn't smart enough to say, "Hey, you should talk about this," but I was hoping you would. I think it was it, a King Vino. He was going to be King Vino, I think. But that's uh, you know, it's it's fascinating, and it's wonderful to think. You know, you always, I always think. Does nobody say, you know, this is just wrong and I don't want to be in this position where I rule over people in an unfair way? And and here's somebody who did. It's kind of a nice little bit of history. Yes. Yes. Um, and, so whatever else and, you say about the Finns, that is an interesting part of their history. Yeah. Yes, it is. Well, we should mention some of the scripts that uh, that we did this week. We had some interesting comments, I thought, in uh, in some of them. The uh, the name of our commentary, uh, uh, we call it scripts because we originally did it on radio, uh, but it's not inadvertent and, and uh, inadvertent. And um, this is something that I think uh, doesn't get much notice at all in modern America, we're all about sunshine, including for sunshine. And the idea of anonymous speech is a terrible thing. Well, who could it be? And, uh, and yet our, our history is full of anonymous speech. Uh, the revolution, I mean, if everybody had been forced to say who they were, who said anything or published anything in the American Revolution, then, you know, we'd have a funny British accent these days. Um, so, you know, th it's really critical. And the Federalist Papers, which are considered a huge legal document to these to this day, because they were written concurrently with passing the Constitution and, you know, the public will is implicated to some degree because it's it's known or felt or thought that, you know, this the, these statements helped convince a majority to support, you know, ratifying the Constitution. So, they, you know, and, and those were written anonymously. And, and there was no campaign finance bureau saying, hey, how much money was spent by you anonymous guys? And, and you know, you think about the campaign finance reforms that have been made really since Nixon, and we needed it because of dirty money in politics. And, you know, and, and look, nobody likes dirty money, although sometimes people disagree about dirty money. But I think we all agree there are cases in which, you know, there are people spending a lot of money to get policy their way where they make a lot of money. But the truth is we have a system that's even better for them now. Um, they can do it all legally. We've kind of legalized it all. And in fact, they can afford better accountants and all the different legal maneuvers and so on and so on. And what's, what's happened in essence is that we've built this, this huge superstructure to stop the billionaires, and one, are the billionaires stopped? Is there anyone out there who would say they're stopped? Now, I don't want to stop them, because I think they've got rights too, and I'm hoping that they might like me. Uh, and and what I believe, and help, you know, bring it to the people. And of course, you know, at times uh, they have, so that's great. And I also look at it when they do it for the other side, and I kind of don't like it, but I think a lot of the people like George Soros, I don't like his politics at all. And, it, and not just that it's liberal politics, I think it's manipulative controlling politics. And that's the scariest kind. Um, 
But the best thing I can say about him is that he puts his money where his mouth is. I the the, the limited amount of, of esteem I have for him is that he's spending a bunch of money on what he ostensibly <laughs> believes. So you know that's that's but but here the IRS has lost information into the public. Uh, has I mean there are many different times where people have gotten information from the IRS that has been weaponized politically, uh, including Donald Trump's, uh, I mean, his tax return uh, was, was, I believe, you know, released by the IRS to somebody. And that's how it, it got out, the one that uh, came out years ago. And, and this is a, the courts have pretty much ruled that where you can show there is a threat to donors, and of course, that's true always and everywhere. And there's even been cases where like the, the Communist Party, the Social Workers Party in California won a case, I believe went all the way to the Supreme Court, where they didn't have to disclose their donors because they could show so much harassment against them by the government. And you think, you know, you got to waste your, aren't there bigger fish to fry? <laughs> the Socialist Workers Party who aren't electing anybody anywhere. Uh, but, but um but that sort of harassment, well, I don't think you should have to go to court every time to prove you could be harassed. That seems like we're saying you can have your rights after somebody has taken it away from you. You can go to court and we'll say you're right. And maybe you could get some damages. Good luck. Um, but that's silly. The courts ought to be looking at it and saying, wait a second, you can't, you can't you know, make all this public and, and put people at risk. People have a right to be anonymous. And I think you would see a lot of people contributing publicly because the public would like to know. And where you want, you decide you want to say that, that's probably a smart thing if you can. Um, but, but being forced to is something different. And what's happening is two groups, the Buckeye Institute in Ohio, great state think tank, uh, and the Institute for Free Speech in Washington, uh, Brad Smith, the former FEC commissioner, uh, uh, happens to be an Ohio uh, uh, legal professor at, at Capital University in Columbus, Ohio. Um, anyway, those two groups are suing the IRS, saying that nonprofit groups should not have to release, not have to give names of donors to the IRS. They don't have any reason to know them. Why should the government know that information? Uh, these groups are not required to give that information to the public. So it's not about sunshine. It's about the government knowing. And and so it's it's a, you know, it's just a very, and, and of course there are other ways. This isn't to figure out whether someone actually gave for tax purposes. There are different ways to do that for people in their, you know, to have a receipt that shows. And, and so there's no real compelling reason for them to have it other than for the government to collect this information. And there is the risk that even though the IRS says they won't release it, that they will, because there are political people at the IRS that do all kinds of stuff they're not supposed to do so instead of being sunshine it's moonshine yes if i may make a stupid pun um the next piece of the week was on december 13th <laughs> m is for misnamed 
M is for misnamed. I remember going on and on about what the title should be. And this comes from a, just a, a little line within it. Well, we, we refer to it as the misnamed Department of Economic Opportunity in Florida. Right. And and uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, as we point out in this piece, has made a name for himself by taking on stupid things that that government does and not being afraid to to question why are we doing it this way that's you know uh that that gives bureaucrats more power and what we call the big government mob and this is about uh you know zoning and housing and what kind of units can be built and so on and there's a very interesting thing i meant to mention this when we first came on uh tam and of course again i forgot uh but we've got a comment here by Randall O'Toole at the website, um, and he disagrees with us here. He says, you missed the target on this one, and points out that he then goes on to say, and I'll just read it. Uh, I don't have my glasses, but I can almost see it. Uh, I can squint and tell what it says. Some 80% of Americans say they prefer to live in single-family homes. Tearing down single-family homes to build apartments doesn't make housing more affordable because it reduces the supply of homes that people want. And he goes into some detail. I won't read the whole thing. It's it's three paragraphs and and so on. But and and you know it'd be interesting to see he doesn't really say and I just saw it before we came on so I hadn't had a chance to kind of think of how I might want to respond and maybe I can pull out more information from him it's possible that he sees it that this is just allowing other regulations to control the market in a way that won't be as beneficial to people and so on but if 80% of the people want single family homes then it seems to me that developers will be building single family homes and that what's being talked about in Gainesville is uh, the ability for them to choose to do non-single family homes. Now, I live in a single family home. I'm glad I live in a single family home. I would be sad if I couldn't live in a family uh, uh, single family home uh, because they weren't building any. But I wouldn't feel like I have any right to force somebody to build that for me i mean maybe if i had more money i could say hey i'll pay extra but i couldn't get a couple buddies on the city council to pass a zoning thing saying they have to build it and what i'm arguing here is really um not somehow i'm not taking a side in whether single family or or non-single family is better or people like it more that's for the marketplace to decide it seems to me get government out of the way and let people buy what they want to buy, build what they want to build and sell what they want to sell. And somehow I think it'll all work out in the end because there's not because they'll all make perfect decisions. Like I know our, our experts in government and our uh, esteemed legislators always make perfect decisions, but I'm recognizing the marketplace will not always make perfect decisions. The difference is it has a way to keep churning and moving and new inputs coming in and people saying, oh, well, it didn't work this time, but I've found a better way to do it. And 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 allow that dynamism that means not only that there are more single family homes for you to build, to, to build and buy and live in, but that there are other choices and that even niche markets 
could be could get what they want and and so on and and regulations where you've got to you got to grease the palms of politicians just is not yeah you know, at the end of the day the uh, quicker better way to do that and that's not and that's not what Randall O'Toole is suggesting obviously I'm not I'm not suggesting he's suggesting that but that's my whole point here is against the government deciding what people need and then making that the marketplace. It's an interesting problem, uh, and I don't really know how to deal with it in a zoning context, because once you get start zoning, it, you just really never end. And that's yes. kind of what, it, I, I gather that's what you're really uh, uh, talking about in a sense, is to, can we be less, um, well, for one thing, the fact that people want single family homes, can they afford them? Well, we have a huge... Right. We have a huge homelessness crisis in the United <laughs> States, and that's because for a hundred years, progressives have been outlawing most form, form excuse me, most forms of low income, no income housing. Is right. that there used to be flop houses everywhere? There used to be really cheap ways of, for people to for poor people to 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 live. Well, most of those are made illegal, and then it had to be subsidized houses because you yeah. can't have ramshackle for profit because that's a slumlord. Because it, uh, my favorite example is in the movie *Young and Innocent* by uh, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, which is a British film, and it takes place in Britain. But you see what a flop house was in the 1920s and 30s. But those don't exist like that today. There are four yes, because those are terrible places, Tim, and we've got better places now. And and I see the same thing in refrigerators and cars and houses in terms of insulation and the windows and different things. They're making improvements. And those improvements cost money. And it starts to create a wealth gap where some people can afford those improvements and other people can't. And the best way to deal with that is to not stomp on houses or cars or other things like the, the cash for clunkers was one of the most evil things that the federal government has ever done. It just it, it ripped off poor people. It's a, it was a terrible thing. And, and designing a society that just gets better and better, but leaves everybody behind which seems to me to be advocated all the time by the same establishment that's worried sick about income inequality. And it's like, you guys are the driver of income inequality by making it to where unless you have the money to get to college, everything needs to be college. We're all about college. Who does that help? Well, it helps the whole education establishment who's talking about it but it also creates a two-tier society in a way that doesn't make sense, frankly, because there's a lot of people I know who are both smart and bright who didn't go to college, but also have skills in things that, frankly, myself have no skills in, in, in welding or carpentry or all kinds of things, plumbing, that is that you're making more money than the people who went to to college in many cases. And if you are entrepreneurial and have good management skills, you're, you have a business that all of a sudden is being built up to where you're making a bunch more money than the average person who went to college. But we, we do seem to continually want to subsidize one group because they fit into the pegs that 
somebody decided ought to be there instead of instead of letting the marketplace work more. And and that's true. In you know, that's one of the things I think about school choice is that you would have more choices for kids. You know, kids who are talented in in more mechanical uh, pursuits are just forced to sit through this crap. It's got to be that way. The same way that I would feel if you were if you were having me, you know, work with my hands on different things. I, I mean, maybe I get it after a while, but I've done it a lot actually, and I do get. You know, I, I'm functional. They didn't fire me and stuff, but <laughs> but that was not my best foot forward. I mean, I'm just telling you, I'm that's it's it, it's not where I'm uh, inclined. And, and people are that way. And we have a school system that kind of decides you got to do all this stuff for us, for the nation state. You know, we have to, we have to, we have to get all of our indoctrination in you. And it's like, couldn't you kind of let them learn some things about what they're interested in and they're going to do the rest of their life while you're indoctrinating them? Is that really so much to ask? Apparently there's a lot. Um, <laughs> actually, the next piece on, on the on the docket or whatever you would call this, this on the queue uh, on December fourteenth. First, stop doing that. The title suggests kind of what you're talking about here too, because what are the priorities of government and what they're trying? You know, if you're doing something wrong, stop doing it. Don't necessarily add on a new law. Don't necessarily add on a new right. program. Stop doing the bad things. And that, in fact, this is actually a follow up to the previous one, isn't it? Yes, this is Yunkin in in Virginia, who's who's working's got an effort to look at all of these type land use regulations, building regulations, other things, because Virginia's housing is so high. And I had a couple of people who commented at the website saying, well, you know, is that just the Washington, D.C. area, which, of course, is super wealthy from all the people who work for your who sacrificed to work for your federal government? And uh, six of the 20 wealthiest counties in the country are surrounding Washington, D.C. Um, and the city itself is richer and richer all the time. But um, not to lose my my train of thought, um, it isn't just the Washington, D.C. area. It's throughout the, the state. And obviously, if you get way enough out into the rural area, the, the costs aren't as high, but the costs have still gone up. And and not down. And so it, it is a problem. And if you want to fix up your house, the rules, local rules may be better, but there's still different regulations and so on. So Yunkin is looking at that. And we, you know, we basically said that makes a lot of sense because we know these are a problem. Let's let's go after them. Let's not, you know, well, but we have to regulate everything. It's sort of a basic problem everywhere in America, though not equally, as you said. It isn't equally everywhere in America. Uh, where I live, uh, one of the reasons I live where I live, I think, is partly because there's very little regulation on uh, land use compared to everywhere else, even in the state I live in. The county I live in is very free compared to everywhere else. Uh, you can build a barn, for instance, without getting a permit. Wow. Now, yeah. But if you go travel 11 miles down the road into the next county, it will cost you $3,000 to get a permit to just build a shed on your property. So that there, there is, there, it's not equal. Right. The amount of regulation is very different. Now, your Thursday piece, I believe it's Thursday, yes, December 15th, Jack's right, mostly to blame, uh, is about 
the regulation of speech. So we're we're talking about something completely different here. It's, it, it, I can I can find an angle that there's something similar, but really it's it's, it's completely different. <laughs> I don't think I don't think there is. But let's stop first and mention that uh, one of the thoughts of the day on the 14th, uh, which I guess was Wednesday, uh, we pulled from a, a podcast. Uh, what a day before, two days before that. Yes. Uh, Matt Taibbi, uh, Barry Weiss uh, uh, have been releasing stuff from from uh, Elon Musk and and Twitter, and um, and of course uh, Matt Taibbi was on Glenn Greenwald's uh, podcast, and he was asking about what you know, what do we really know out of all of this? And it, it it's interesting to me because the media the left for the most part has seen this as a nothing burger somehow because there were, you know, nobody plotting to kill anybody or something, or, you know, that the government didn't say, Hey, you must do this or we'll do X, Y, and Z to you. But here's the quote from that podcast and what Matt Taibbi said, the, the takeaway is we now know that the government is in the business of mass censoring. And um, that's what they are doing. Now, they are working through tech platforms, but they are working through tech platforms. <laughs> they are meeting with, they are colluding with. The word collusion that we've heard so much about until there wasn't any collusion and then somehow that word didn't really matter. But that word does matter. And it does matter when the government is working with private businesses that have every right to do what they want to do within the laws. We now know they're colluding with these private businesses to get them to censor certain things, including things that have a gigantic impact on elections and including doing things like shadow banning certain candidates when an election's going on. Now, you and I aren't allowed to mention their name or show their likeness without marching ourselves down to the Federal Election Commission and filling out a bunch of paperwork and so on and so on. But these big tech social media platforms can shadow ban the, the candidate they don't like. They can create this whole big multi-billion, 44 billion worth enterprise. Talk about big corporations, big media, powerful, 44 billion worth. And they can spend all that money and do that whole thing aiming it for one guy to all this audience and literally kicking the legs out from the other woman running. That's what they can do. And they don't have to report anything or do anything. And they'll be getting calls from the White House and other people all the time to help them do it. That's America today. And it's no big deal. Oh, nothing happening here. It's like when, when I had people sometimes say after Snowden, pointed out that they're getting all of our bank records and our social media posts and everything else. And, oh, they put them out there public. People put them out there publicly. That doesn't mean the government's supposed to scoop them up. 
I don't want to pay for a government to scoop them up. I don't care whether you put them out there or don't put them out there. That's up to you. But it's not up to the government to scoop them up. And people also said, oh, well, didn't we always know they were doing it? No, we didn't know. We suspected those bums were doing it, but we didn't know. And we suspected that Twitter was like a political operation screwing over some people and helping other people. But we didn't know it until these last couple of weeks. And the worst thing is people who think, what's the big deal? Depends on whether you want to live in a free society, pal. Yeah, and uh, your piece on Thursday uh, went to a sort of a weird confession. And, and it's, it was something I suspected. You know, a lot of this, like you said, we suspected a lot of things. Yes. And, and I did suspect that Dorsey found himself in a tough spot. That the previous CEO, you know, until last year, he was the CEO of Twitter. He was the founder, and he was kind of the genius behind it. Uh, I, I sort of figured, for, especially how he reacted uh, in the infamous uh, Joe Rogan podcast that he participated yes. in, uh, and the one with uh, Tim Pool as well, and and the um, an Indian woman who was in charge of uh, uh, their their standards and practices or whatever their whatever their organization was. Right. I it, he never seemed like a person who wanted to censor, but it seemed like he was caught up in something that he was that he was under the he was he was being it, played. You could kind of see he felt guilty. Yeah. You know, and that that came through, and and uh, you know, and his, here it is, and now and now it's record. He basically said, "Yeah." And we're we're talking about Jack's right mostly to blame, and this is Jack Dorsey blaming himself for allowing woke staff, new investors who were hard left Democrats who wanted to to move Twitter in that direction, pressuring him to basically let's make it a woke pro Democrat hard left uh you know platform. And that means we shadow ban the conservatives and we and we highlight the liberals and we Basically, you know, shut down posts like the New York Post post about the Hunter Biden laptop. And and look, you don't have to believe if I thought the Hunter Biden laptop was a complete non-story, wouldn't have changed anything. I'm still sick to death that I now live in a country where a story like that can just be killed. A true story. And it can be killed how? By 56 or 59 or whatever the number was of former Intel people who have been on our television all the time and who are getting classified information from the government coming out and lying to us and tricking us and pretending that they were pretty doggone sure that this is a Russian disinformation effort, even though two things were true. They had not a shred of evidence to suggest that it was. And secondly, in their heart of hearts, they knew it wasn't. They lied straight out. They made it up. They were part of a scam. This is who our intelligence people are. And not all of them. I'm sure there's some honest ones, too. I, I'm dubious about that. I, that I'm, I'm, <laughs> with, with the intel agencies, I'm sort of uh, guilty until proven innocent. Uh. Well, you, you start to think that. And and. The worst part about it is I know I know good, decent, smart, 
thoughtful people who for one reason or another cannot wrap their heads around this and see that this is a problem. And it it's not about Donald Trump. It's not about, you know, Brennan or somebody. This isn't about personalities. This is now a system that is sick and out of control in a world that has authoritarianism called that's that's a nice word for totalitarianism run amok and so it's it you know it's not only that america's going down the tubes i'm afraid much of the world goes down with us and so i'd really like to you know before i leave this realm do whatever i could to stop that from happening and and you know it's interesting uh go read jack's right mostly to blame uh, we talk a lot about uh, Twitter and Facebook and social media and, and those sorts of things. We have a search engine. Uh, you can get a lot more on it. But this leads me directly to Hong Kong Help, our uh, Friday piece. And, you know, we're always looking for answers and ways that people can make a difference. And uh, and this isn't it. <laughs> Except it is, in a sense. So stay with me. Uh, last Friday, not today, but last Friday, I uh, and a friend went to Catholic University in Washington, D.C. to go see The Hong Konger. It's about Jimmy Lai. Uh, this is a guy who escaped from China when he was 12 and went to Hong Kong, <laughs> went to work, I think, when he got to Hong Kong before he went to bed, <laughs> lived, I think, outside for a while, living there and working, it became a billionaire doing all kinds of businesses uh, and then said, well, it's no fun to make more money if I can't do something good for the world. And so he started Apple Daily, which agitated for democracy in Hong Kong. Now, Hong Kong had some limited democracy and so on, but it's never had the sort of full-fledged democracy it deserved and that is uh, a slap in the face to the British and uh, and a bigger slap in the face to the CCP and China's government, which took it over and couldn't even give them 50 years of freedom. Freedom was too dangerous to the CCP and they had to come in and and basically they have now uh, arrested so many people. You can't say anything in China or in, in, well, in China too, but in Hong Kong that doesn't violate the national security law if they want to say it does. And they convict everybody. And, you know, what was once a, a truly, not that it was perfect because it was not just like, you know, no, no judicial system around the world is perfect. Ours certainly is not, but it had a level of, blind justice that was at least approaching that in some capacity and now it has the you know you're guilty because we said so sort of uh judicial system that they have in china which is what all the protests in 2019 were about is they wanted china wanted the hong kong government which is a rubber stamp for china to pass a extradition law which would allow beijing anytime it felt like to take someone out of Hong Kong and take them into China, put them in jail, go to court there uh, and go to prison there, uh, which would basically be a underhanded, semi-quieter way 
to institute a national security law. Because anytime you felt like it, you could arrest somebody for some trumped up charge and just take them to China. And they'd get the message pretty soon that if you say anything we don't like, you go to China and then you're guilty and then you go to prison. So um, so that's why literally out of a population of, I believe, 7 million uh, Hong Kongers, and this includes people who are old in nursing homes and kids and stuff, 2 million came out to one single rally, one single march against this extradition law, 2 million. You know, that's, that is just unheard of. And, um, and so then, you know, these, these protests continue. The police response was extremely violent um, and including things like armed thugs coming in Police, like like uh, after about a month of the protests, there was one incident in which the protesters coming back on the metro train uh, are met with thugs, like 30, 40 thugs with, you know, sticks and belts and stuff to beat the holy shit out of them. No police in the station. No, you know, I mean, this, this, and that's why when we say things like Chinazi, we're not saying that glibly or flippantly. We're saying that seriously. This is a Chinazi, this is a Nazi sort of thing to do. It's one thing to arrest people outrageously on trumped up charges. It's another thing to have brown shirt type people who come in and beat the hell out of people. That's a thuggish thing par excellence. And, uh, and, and so... Anyway, the, the, the protests got more and more violent. There were universities where they basically blocked out the police and then they were fighting back and forth. And, and so there was all kinds of violence. There was also the incidents, the incident, which I saw, and I think other people may have seen, where the one, the, the protesters supposedly lets, lit some guy's uh, shirt on fire. Uh, and I, I noticed that at the time, I thought, I wonder if you'll ever hear anything more about this. And and I never could. I never could find out whatever happened to that guy. And, you know, if he died or he was burned or whatever, I think it was complete fake news. And there was there were other things like that. Uh, There's a great article in The Atlantic this week about uh, a whole fake thing that China invented to try to embarrass Taiwan about something. I won't go down that tangent. We're, we're long enough, but I, I probably will write about it at some point. But um, it's it, it, it's unbelievable the degree of gaslighting and lying. But when you're a genocidal, vicious, totalitarian regime, I mean, what do you do when you meet distant people? You lie. Um, so anyway, uh, at the end of 2019, there are local elections. Now, these are not for the, the big city council type thing. These are more local. And, uh, and pro-democracy forces, and there was a lot of talk in the press, in the Western press I'm talking about. I don't read Chinese. Um, there was a lot of talk about the protests going violent and that may have caused people to really back off and so on. There were people running for the first time as pro as recognized pro-democracy candidates. They won 87% of the seats. These are new people sometimes in their late twenties running against seasoned veteran incumbent politicians. 
And of course, everybody's voting. So older people, all kinds of different people, the businessmen, you know, Hong Kong's kind of like, you know, it's a it's a very civilized place. Eighty seven percent, not not sixty five or fifty eight or seventy three or eighty two or eighty five, eighty seven percent of the seats won by people who are are, are stated pro-democracy candidates knocking out incumbent after incumbent. That's how much the public in Hong Kong was upset with the protesters as opposed to the police. They were upset with the police, not the protesters. And that's why when COVID happened, they pushed through the national security law and so on. It wasn't that they were afraid they couldn't quell the protests. They realized the protest is everybody. It's, it's 87% of the people. And so anyway, into all this, Jimmy Lai has been a tremendous, we did our person of the year. We showed that last week. Uh, we think he should have been times person of the year. Uh, his agitation over a long period of time uh, in Hong Kong and, and under some dangers, even then now They've arrested him under the national security law. They have a trumped up uh, uh, fraud charge over some contract that they have found him guilty of. And he's already been sentenced to 69 months. That's five years, nine months. And uh, it's a long time for this, for the ridiculousness of the charge in the first place. But he's also facing trial that they just pushed off until next September while he's sitting in jail for national security violating national security law, which means saying things like democracy would be nice and meeting with people and saying, I like democracy. What about you? And maybe we ought to hold a vigil, you know, violent, vicious things like that. Uh, very religious man. I didn't realize that uh, he doesn't in his in his speeches and stuff. You know, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about religion, uh, but uh, in this documentary, it points out that he became a Christian, uh, his, his, you know, married his wife. And, and I think later in life, uh, really, that's when he became much more uh, willing to take on issues and causes. And he's basically, you know, as I point out in this piece, he could be on any nice beach anywhere in the world, sipping a Mai Tai and, uh, and relaxing and never doing another lick of work. Uh, the rest of his life. He's a billionaire. And instead, he didn't leave Hong Kong. He's staying. And he basically says in this film, I owe freedom my life. And it's Hong Kong that gave me that freedom. I came here and I was free. 12-year-old kid going to work the first day he's there in some sweatshop. But it it was an opportunity as opposed to being in a totalitarian society that was really, really poor in China. And of course, he's not so excited about China's wealth these days because he realizes it's tied to, you know, stuff that uh, being wealthy. Uh, I remember a great quote, quote by this German professor who was part of the White Rose. He helped the students who were doing that in Munich and during World War II. And in his trial, he said that he still felt like Germany would win the war. The students were all thinking, you had them into Stalingrad, we're not going to win this war. But this professor still thought that 
Germany would win the war, but he didn't really want it to. And he points out that he's not interested in, you know, wealth if it's wealth in chains uh, to to Nazism. And and I think that's I think Jimmy Lai is knows that he could do all kinds of things in life, but that he loves Hong Kong and he's going to give the his last full measure of devotion to the place he loves because it's a place of freedom and what's always associated with freedom, human rights. And at this uh, movie, I think the whole audience at uh, Catholic University, and I note that, you know, we, why are we seeing it at Catholic University? Why isn't it all over Hollywood and everywhere else? I don't know. But but afterwards, there was some questions and answers. Uh, uh, Bill McGurn, who's a writer, uh, columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and a friend of Jimmy Lai's, uh, you know, made a brief statement and then took questions and so on. And, and one of the first questions was a woman who emotionally said, you know, what can we do to help? And as the questions went on and on, you know, I thought about her question and it occurred to me that it's something that that I really feel about the Hong Kong protests. And, and that is this, that there's almost nothing that we can do for them. Almost nothing. We've got no control over the situation. It's not like we're paratrooping in and and helping them. We can't. We we just we're not capable of doing it. We can pray for them. We can send them mail. They had a thing where you could fill out a postcard and stuff and and send it to to Jimmy Lai, uh, and hopefully they could get it to him with you know and that sort of thing. So yes, we can do that. But as we are thinking about how can we help. And, and I don't want to act like that's a, you know, a privileged, how can we help in America? But uh, because it wasn't, I mean, we, we want to help. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But I want us to realize that the help here is going the other way. We've gotten help. We're in this too. We're not in the, in the, in the stands watching it as spectators. We are in this world too. And this is a threat to us. And, the, the folks who have helped somebody here is Jimmy Lai and the protesters in Hong Kong have helped us all. They have saved possibly Taiwan and, and the whole world ultimately in that I think there's a huge danger. This isn't a tiny danger going on in China. Uh, this is a huge one. And they woke the world up to it. And I think that Jimmy Lai knew he couldn't he wasn't going to prevail in this battle and he fought the battle anyway because he wanted to help the whole world and i think the protesters these students they are smart people and you know listening to their statements and the things that they've said i think they fully understood how tough it would be to to win this and how dangerous what they were doing was and yet they did it anyway. And I just think we have to take away from that, that, you know, when someone makes a sacrifice to give you the information to fight to protect yourself, by golly, fight to protect yourself. Um, and and I think that, you know, I, I don't have a long list of, okay, now we do one, two, three, but I think we have to recognize this is a threat. And, and I think we live in a world in which, Free people living in Taiwan or Australia or Japan 
uh, I want to make sure they stay free because I think if they don't, we won't. And, and, you know, it's not exactly the domino theory and it's not kind of the theory I've had of, of foreign policy. I've always wanted us to pull back and stop being the world's policeman. And I still want us to stop being the world's policeman. But I now want us to connect up with free peoples, especially in Asia. I've always thought that NATO and Europe is plenty rich enough and populous enough and everything else to defend itself against Russia. I think it's silly that the United States needs to be involved there. I really think it's silly. But I also think it has worked to some degree. And I would be careful if I were in a position of, of authority over our policy, I'd be careful about that. Because it's not all about ideology to me. It is also about people living instead of dying and, and not being, you know, stomped on by some, you know, authoritarian power. Well, I think we should probably end right there. I think that's fair. <laughs>